a Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He, he won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome to episode 84 of the Say the Damn Score podcast. As you just heard the big voice guy say, I'm Logan Anderson, a freelance sportscaster in the Twin Cities metro area. As always, this podcast is dedicated to sportscasting and sharing stories and ways to improve in the business. Please follow the show on Twitter by following me at Radio underscore Logan, and I always appreciate feedback on the show, whether that's a tweet, an email through clicking the contact button on SayTheDamnScore.com, or iTunes reviews and ratings are also very valuable. February in my sportscasting career has always been one of my favorite months, but it's also a month that in many ways I dread. There's just so much going on, and the cumulative effect of grinding through football and basketball season starts to wear me down when it comes to this time of year. On the flip side, it's the time when some of the most exciting games take place. High school tournaments, small college conference tournaments. It's the time where we get to broadcast the big games and big moments that we got into the business for. This year's no exception for me personally. I'm smack dab in the middle of a stretch with five basketball broadcasts in five days for five different teams. I take that back. I get to repeat one team, a small college team, Augsburg College. So I'll I'll at least have a little bit of a base for what I'm going into there. But otherwise, it's all different companies and all different teams. And it's going to be a long week, but a good week. I do all this while I'm still trying to build a base of business from scratch for my radio sales job in Faribault, Minnesota, and it's going well, but anytime you have to build something from scratch, it's it takes time and patience, and there's always moments of frustration along the way. And it is 100% safe to say that come late March, when all of the winter seasons are over, and when the temperatures start to rise and some of the snow starts to melt, I will be ready to use some vacation relax and recharge a little bit after the stretch run. All that being said, it's one of my favorite times of year. I'm really looking forward to seeing some excellent high school and small college basketball and enjoy the drama of tournament time. This week on the podcast, I'm really happy to be chatting with Michelle Tofoya from NBC Sunday Night Football and about a million other places. She's been one of the best sideline and in-studio reporters in the business for decades, and it goes without saying that she's a pioneer when it comes to women in sportscasting. She needs no introduction, but Michelle Tofoya, thanks for making time and welcome to the show. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. We're recording this the day after the Super Bowl, and mm-hmm. I figured good place to start talking about your career and your experience. You've covered four different Super Bowls, and we don't want to talk about yesterday's game. It was kind of boring, so just take <laughs> us through what it's like covering a Super Bowl, how it's different from any other game. It's funny, you know, a lot of people like to say, oh, it's just another game. You know, that's how you have to think of it, and in some ways that's true, but there's no getting around, and you, you saw it if you watched any of the pregame, that 10, 15 minutes before kickoff, how much media there is on the field, how much sort of light and explosion and color there is going on around you. It's an attention that's far greater than any other game of the season, by far, like exponentially greater. And so your nerves are higher. They just are. And it's really an all-day affair. You know, we do a Sunday night game, and we work all day. We start very early that morning, and we work all the way through the day and the night. But it's different with the Super Bowl because the event is really going on all day long, and there's stuff you've got to be doing, game re- you know, game-relevant stuff that you have to be doing all day long, and the nerves are high all day long. And so until that kickoff happens your energy is just at a different level. And, um, you know, it's, I, I got that feeling as I watched those 15 minutes before th- the game yesterday and remembered it very, very clearly that it is a different feeling. 
Um, the preparation is fairly similar, just as it would be if you're a player, but the energy and the, the feeling of a microscope and the feeling of the whole world's watching and you don't want to make an error, that feeling is gigantic. So on the other hand, when you have that, when you don't make an error and when you nail that broadcast, is there a adrenaline spike uh, at the end where you're proud of yourself or is it more of a sense of relief? I'd say there's a little bit of both. Um, I think I think depending on how the game finishes and what that post game is like, especially for for someone like me who's chasing down interviews on the, on the field after the game, that's when your adrenaline kind of shoots and it's fun and you know that you're capturing a moment that is so special for the players, for the fans, um, for the viewers, and it's you really want to make the most of that moment. You want to get something out of the player that um, that just is really taps into what they're sensing and, and that feeling on the field. It's very tough to replicate, but in, and it's in it, I don't know how well it comes through the television set, but it, we do feel adrenalized. We do kind of have that feeling of high five, but you also you know get to breathe a little bit. Um, they won the championship. You didn't. You were covering the championship. Uh, so there is some relief after all the hard work is done. But if the broadcast goes well, uh, and which I'm pleased to say with our crew, they usually do, then you, you're you're feeling uh, like you're breathing easier and you're just really happy. So I was paying attention a little bit to uh, the reporter in the aftermath of yesterday's game on TV, and there's just so many bodies everywhere after that game. Does NBC give you wranglers who find people for you or help you to corral people? How do you get the interviews you want with that much traffic? Yeah, it's it, it, it's a most people did observe the challenges of that yesterday. Yeah, um, it, it, there's there's a combination of both of those things. Sometimes it is up to me to to chase down a player, and that's fine. I have no problem doing that. And, you expect the physicality of it. I think the physicality of the sideline reporter's job is probably really underestimated and, and not talked about. But you have to be fit and ready to run and ready to just put your body out there because there's no telling what happens on those sidelines and on that field. And in that situation, uh, my most memorable one was when the Patriots beat the Seahawks. Russell Wilson threw the interception and Malcolm Butler in the end zone. And I knew that wasn't the end of the game, but I knew from that moment on, my job was going to be to corral Malcolm Butler. So I was basically stalking him on the sideline until the, you know, the final, the final seconds ticked off the clock. And then I grabbed him and I was ready with him. And once Al threw down to us, Malcolm was a little, he didn't want to wait anymore. He was so excited to celebrate. He took off running and this all happened on camera. So I had to chase him down on camera. I still haven't seen that back. I've never watched it back. People tell me it was pretty funny. But, um, you know, the, there are moments like that. It's just very unpredictable, and you've got to be ready for the unpredictable. In most of this podcast, we're going to talk about your career and about the broadcasting business. But since we, it's a little bit of a unique circumstance, as someone who's covered Super Bowls, not very many people get to do it in their hometown. You got to do that mm-hmm. last year here in Minneapolis. What was that experience like? What were some of the highlights? Well, it was certainly great um, not having to be on the road for an entire week, which you normally are. And I have two kids, and I, I don't like being away that long. So a highlight for me was getting to share it with them and getting them to sort of see what goes into it. Uh, it was cool being at home. You know, it was really cold um, that day. It was about two degrees, I think. And so I remember people just coming up to me left and right and saying, how do you live here? How do you live here? And, you know, I, I get tired of that question because, as you know, there are so many amazing things about Minnesota that it, people just don't understand if they're only here for a short period of time. And especially if they're here in the cold, that's the biggest impression that is made upon them when there is so much more. Um, but so I do remember that. And I remember thinking, oh, I don't want to answer this question again. But um, the other good stuff was just just the game and the way it played out. The Philadelphia Eagles winning their very first world championship was kind of remarkable to a franchise that is that storied and had had so many opportunities to think that it was their first and and the 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 improbable way that it was done with Nick Foles and Carson Wentz being sidelined and all of it and beating the Patriots and you know the Philly special and all of it and uh, so many unbelievable plays throughout that game that made it just exciting from moment to moment and um you know the games like that 
don't come along every day as as this last Super Bowl it showed us. Uh, but that one was extraordinary. And um, I think just being at home and being proud of the stadium, too, just, you know, it, it was the, the, the first time really the entire NFL community descended on this place and got to see U.S. Bank Stadium. And it was fun seeing my bosses from NBC and Comcast, seeing NFL, you know, people, folks coming in and saying, wow, this stadium's pretty cool. And that, that, that fills you with a sense of pride. And, and uh, I knew it was cool all along. It was, so it was great for other people to see it. So all of those things, having friends, um, you know, just being able to take part in some of the activities. It was, it was just, it was really fun to share a Super Bowl experience with this, with the Twin Cities. Can you imagine the, how do you live here questions if the Super Bowl had been here this year instead when oh, it was negative yeah, 50? Yeah, we were talking about that. I was sending pictures of my car thermometer to my to my producer and director and to Alan Chris, and we were laughing about it. could have been us, but it turns out, you know, that Sun- Super Bowl Sunday actually was pretty decent, pretty nice. Uh, but the lead-up would have been, yeah, it would have been the story. So doing a little bit of reading up, I, I read a little anecdote that you're in an article that your mom said that you used to give uh, shows and tell stories on a pretend microphone at your house when you were very young. I believe it was three or four. <laughs> at what point in your life did you know you wanted to go into journalism and broadcasting? It, you know, it's funny. It was not – when I did all those little song and dances as a kid, I don't think I was thinking about being a journalist at all, but I – you know, I got to college, and I originally started out as a psychology major because I love the brain. I love the way people think. But I got attracted to television and um, started working in radio in the Bay Area, Northern California, and um, studying mass communications at Cal Berkeley. And so after that, I thought, well, I'd really like to do this. I think I'd like to pursue news or something of that nature, but I better have a fallback. So I went to graduate school to get a master's in business, and while I was there, I produced – I just wanted to produce something. I wanted to use all this creativity I had to produce some sort of documentary or film, and I said – I went to the dean of the business school, and I said, can I have $50,000 to produce a promotional video for the USC School of Business Administration for the master's program? And much to my surprise, he said, yes, you may. And I so I here I'm given this big budget – and USC has this great film school, so I, got, I recruited a director and a producer from the USC School of Film, and and uh, we went out and produced this thing. And I had the time of my life doing this. But the funny part of it was that while that was going on, and I was enjoying the editing process and the writing and all of that, um, I, I was a massive sports fan, a just a just twenty four seven sports fan, and. Um, I started thinking about it, and I started thinking, and, and that was about the time that we were starting to see Leslie Visser and Hannah Storm and Robin Roberts and these people emerging on television as, as women, in some of the first women in this male-dominated field, and I thought, I think I can do that. And so after I graduated business school, um, I'll, I'll cut through some of it. I just said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go get a job in sports broadcasting wherever I can. And I sent out like a gazillion tapes and got my first job in Charlotte, North Carolina, doing sports talk radio for five hours every day. And um, that's sort of where it began for me. And I just I just kept taking the next step, just kept trying to build and build and just take the next next step. And there was a lot of luck along the way, believe me. So how did you end up with that very first position in Charlotte? I know that you went by a pseudonym on the air. And I guess just Charlotte from Los Angeles seems like uh, a long way away. And <laughs> is there a connection there, or was it just blindly no applying? Con- no connection whatsoever. I knew, and someone had told me, you just have to get a job. Get a job and start. And so at that time, you know, I thought, okay, I'll take a job wherever I can get it. The, the job that's going to give me a paycheck where I can, you know, at least live and, and get experience. And the first real nibble that I got was from this radio station in Charlotte, North Carolina, and they sold me on this whole bit of, you know, we're the upcoming Atlanta, we're the next, you know, Atlanta, we're a big city emerging in the South, and da-da-da, and I thought, okay, I, I can do that. So I mean, at the time, I was living with my, uh, my one of my best friends on the beach in Hermosa Beach, California, 
And I just packed up and I left and I went to Charlotte and it was a really difficult nine or 10 months there. Really difficult. The culture change, um, just, you know, cutting my teeth and all of that kind of stuff. But I knew, I knew if I wanted, if I was serious about this career and I was very serious about this career, that I was going to have to get through experiences like that in order to move on and move upward and um, that's it, it, there was no other pull to that place and that location and that radio station other than they were the first people to offer me a job. You went by the name Mickey Conley there, if uh, I read correct. Yeah. Why? Well, at the time, they didn't think Tafoya sounded so great. And so I took my mom's maiden name, which was Conley, C-O-N-L-E-Y, Irish. And, um, and I was Michelle Conley. But my co-host on the air wanted a catchier thing and he was a big Yankees fan. And so he thought it would be fun to call me the Mick. So he nicknamed me Mickey. So here I went from Michelle Tafoya to Michelle Conley to Mickey Conley. And it was, I, I never liked it. It never felt comfortable. And I'll never forget that when I moved on to my next job, my dad said to me, um, can you do me a favor? He said, I don't ask for a lot from you, but do you think you could go by Tafoya? I'd really love it if our family name, if you represented it. And I said, I promise you I will. And I, and I did. I said, no matter where I go, you're going to have to accept Tafoya. That's my name. That's what I like to go by. And, you know, it's, it's funny because a lot of people have a trouble looking at it and saying it. I don't know why it's so difficult, but it, it, it is, it's very natural to me, obviously, because I grew up with it. But uh, that's the story there, and I'm so glad to have shed that that nickname. I hated it. <laughs> and from Charlotte, your next stop was here in Minneapolis, St. Paul. What was the connection or the path that led you there? Well, as luck, and I say that and I mean it, there's a lot of luck in this business. As luck would have it, I had a friend who worked at KFAN in Minneapolis, the all-sports station, and um they had me on a couple of times as a guest from Charlotte, uh, one time just to talk about the Charlotte Hornets because we, you know, K-Fan had the, the, the Timberwolves, and so we talked a lot of NBA, and so I'd come on and talk about the Charlotte Hornets. And one time when we broke the news, and we actually on our little tiny station broke the news that Michael Jordan was retiring because we knew someone in Charlotte who was printing the retirement T-shirts and let it slip to us that Jordan was going to retire, so we broke that story. So, again, K-Fan had me on. And during one of those interviews with K-Fan, there I am in my little apartment in Charlotte talking to Minneapolis, where I'd never been, by the way. And um, the host said to me, Michelle, can you hold on when we hang up here? Someone would like to speak to you. And so, you know, the interview ended. I stayed on the line and this woman picked up the phone. She said, hi, I'm Lorna Gladstone and I want to hire you. And I said, oh, and um she just said, I, you know, I love the way you sound on the air. I'm going to fly out here. We're going to show you around, and I'm going to offer you a job. I said, okay. So I was really thrilled because I was miserable in Charlotte, and it, that was not – no offense to the city. It was just the circumstance. And um, and she flew me out here, and she did a great job of showing me the best stuff of the Twin Cities, restaurants she knew I would like. She did a great – deep dive on my background and found out stuff that I might be interested in. And she gave me a tour of the place and, and she offered me a job and I really wanted to get out of Charlotte. So I thought I'll go to Minneapolis. I'll stay one year because there's no way I can handle the cold for more than one year. And 24, 25 years later here, I still am. And I think it's interesting that you went to USC for business. You kind of got into uh, the field through doing video editing and production. When you ended up in radio for your first job, did you think that that would be permanent, or did you always intend to get back to on-air television? Television was always the goal, and the NFL was always the goal. So, in fact, you just reminded me that when they offered me the job in Minneapolis, I said, I will take it, but I, there's, I only want to make sure of one thing. I want to be part of your Vikings broadcast. They had the Vikings uh, rights at that time. And she said, okay, you can be a sideline reporter on the Vikings broadcast. So I was utterly thrilled because that would be my first work on the NFL directly. And um, so that made the decision very, very easy to come here. And um, my intention was always, what's the next step? 
what's the next step? What's the next step to getting to cover the NFL on television? Um, I love radio. I absolutely love the medium. It gives you this freedom, as, as these podcasts do, to talk a little bit, to go a little bit deeper into subjects and to be more conversational. And I, I love that part of it. Uh, so I still enjoy doing radio and I still do it. But my goal was to to cover the NFL on television. And I just, just amazingly steps presented themselves to me that allowed me to get there. Was that your first sideline reporting job with the Vikings at the NFL level? Or had you had previous experience with that type of uh, work? Oh, it was my first. I mean, I I just learned on the job. It was crazy. I would hate to go back and listen to tapes of that because I'm sure it was I was just a mess. But um, you you got to start, and you got to just you know that's one thing. It, it's it's funny sometimes people look at you know these experienced play by play artists or and I say artists because I think there is an art to it and and analysts and sideline reporters and they think that they just showed up there like Al Michaels has always been there. Well. If you knew Al Michaels' history and where he started, you would be flabbergasted. And so it's you've got to take a lot of steps. Some people get very lucky and fall into big-time jobs, whether it be by connection or by an amazing circumstance. In, in some ways, I'd, I'd say that happened to me as well. But you've got to take a ton of baby steps to get there, and you can't skip those. And and you've got to cut your teeth and you've got to go through the disastrous broadcasts in order to have the really good ones. So it's um, you've got to have a thick skin, and mine just got thicker every day. Was there an example of a, a disastrous broadcast, as you said, <laughs> that you can talk about and laugh at now? I'm laughing already just thinking about them, and thank goodness. And, and this is living proof, folks. You can get over your mistakes. You can survive them. Um, there are a couple. One had to do with covering the national championship game as a sideline reporter very early in my career. And I was telling a story, and you're probably too young to remember this, but Lawrence Phillips was the, a controversial running back for Nebraska who had uh, been accused of domestic abuse, but he was allowed to play in the national championship game. And he started to tear off this run in the middle of my story. And I didn't know, I'd never had the experience of having to cut myself out of the middle of a story. So Jim Nance up in the booth just sort of interrupted and finished calling the play. And I, I should probably still send him a note apologizing for stepping on that moment. Um, it was awful. It, and, you know, I got thoroughly ripped for it, and deservedly so. But I had to learn, and that's the way that I learned. Uh, there was another time, and I was sitting doing a studio broadcast for, for CBS, and I was told to do one thing, but the prompter showed something entirely different. And I, I kind of said to – you're not really supposed to to do this uh, when you're sitting on network TV. You're supposed to not say, uh, guys, where do you want me to go? But I, in fact, said, uh, guys, where do you want me to go? <laughs> because I had a one script in my hand and a totally different one in the teleprompter in front of me, and I didn't want to screw up. And so that was a miserable moment. And I, I'll tell you um, – Years and years and years later, someone came up to me at the sports Emmys just after the, the Emmy show was over, and she said to me, I've always wanted to tell you this. I'm the person that screwed up the teleprompter for you. <laughs> and I said, <laughs> oh, my gosh, how sweet of you to come tell me after all this time. And I thought that was so cool and so brave because it was a really big, bad moment for me. It was really uncomfortable. and I thought, I'm never going to get past this. They're never going to let me do this again. But you just keep digging away. You know, it's interesting you bring up that Nebraska game because I'm originally from Nebraska, and that's my first great sports memory. I think I was, that was oh my like 96, so I was 10. But <laughs> I, I remember that vividly, and that's actually the <laughs> first time I remember your broadcast because I remember you telling a story about – whatever the guy's name for Florida was that was trying to mimic Tommy Frazier. Yes. And I yes. said, yeah, right. <laughs> oh, God. Thank you so much for having a memory that good to remember my one of my worst moments in sportscasting. <laughs> I, I didn't mean to. I, I only remember the, <laughs> the story and thinking that there's no way this guy can be Tommy Frazier. But... <laughs> <laughs> So I guess I want to just uh, go take us through the Cliff Notes version of how you got from 
from KFAN in the Twin Cities to doing network work with CBS? Yeah, it's it was honestly it's pretty crazy, and I don't think things happen there that this way very often, and that's why I know I'm really lucky. So I'm doing radio, and I just really started to work really hard, and um, it was at the time that CBS Sports lost the NFL. They had had the NFL forever, the rights to the NFL, and a little upstart network called Fox came along and was ready to just put as much money into their offer for the NFL as they could. They knew they needed that property in order to be big, and they stole it away from CBS. And so people like John Madden and Pat Summerall and Leslie Visser all left for either Fox or somewhere else to cover the NFL because it was no longer at CBS. So CBS had all these openings, and they didn't have a lot of properties to, to cover, but they thought this would be a good time to groom some young talent. And so I remember Gus Johnson was, was came in about the same time I did. I went there. I, I got hired. And just over one interview, I mean, I had a demo tape that I sent them that I had, you know, put together here in Minneapolis and it sent it and they had me come in and the, the guys there at CBS really liked me and they hired me that day. And uh, so it was talk about a shock. Um, and that's why I just really probably was not adequately prepared and um, and I think I was in shock for about the first six months of my job, kind of the buzz of it, not knowing exactly what I was doing, um, not having enough television experience to, to function well. But that's that's the why they brought us in there was really to, to grow us. And they gave me some amazing opportunities, and I'm forever grateful because they hung in there with me for five years while I grew up in television on the network level. So it was, it was really, um, it was like slamming into a wall and being dazed, being really excited and having a phenomenal opportunity, but not being quite ready. It was a really trying time, uh, but it taught me so much. And the fact that I survived it um, tells you, you can survive anything if you really are willing to go through a lot of pain. <laughs> It's time to take a short break and talk about STAA. To me personally, STAA is like the ultimate set of tools for a broadcasting career. They provide tools to grow and develop your on-air sound and to help you simply sound better on the air. They also have tools to network and build relationships, tools to help make you stand out with employers, and tools to find job openings as soon as they open all across the country. I know a lot of people think, why should I sign up and if it's really worth it? I was one of those people for over a year before I took the leap and it's been critical to my growth in the profession. You know the jobs posted on the STAA job board? You may not know that A, you see them faster as a member and some of them are filled so quickly that they never even make it to the board. So you may never see a job opening if you're not a member. They also provide a free monthly group critique service which is an incredible resource to get better at your craft by having your work listened to and by being able to fix your own mistakes by listening to others. And most importantly, anytime you have a question, no matter how seemingly small, John Chalesnik will answer in a thoughtful and truthful manner. He tells you what you need to hear, even if it's not what you necessarily want to hear at that time. I've partnered with STAA to provide you this special offer. Join STAA by April 30th, 2019 and get a free month added to your membership. That's a $30 value free if you sign up for STAA through staatalent.com slash say the damn score. There's a link to that site in the show notes and anytime you sign up through staatalent.com slash say the damn score, you support the show as I receive a small commission at no additional cost to you. So get a free month of STAA if you join by April 30th, 2019 by visiting staatalent.com slash say the damn score. Now back to the show. After a couple years there, you moved on to ABC slash ESPN. And that's kind of really when you became the Michelle Tafoya that we all know. How did that come about and just relate that experience? I think just it was time for a change, and um, and so you know my agent found a nice offer at ESPN, but but ESPN is massive, 
and it has a lot of announcers, and I was the new kid on the block. And so, you know, I had to take a lot of smaller roles. I, the, one of the first things I covered was alpine skiing in Kitzbühel, Austria. So, you know, it, it, it was a, in some ways a very difficult transition because I was the newbie and I was sort of having to climb all over again. But I just continued to accept every assignment that was offered to me. And before you knew it, several more years had passed. I, I worked my way onto the NBA and um, proved myself there. And, and it was at a time when they brought in Al Michaels to do the Sunday NBA games, um, to be like that big time, big voice, big name for, for the network of the games on ABC, which ABC and ESPN are co-owned. And, and, and so I was the sideline reporter. I met Al, and we started working together, and it was working really great. ABC also had Monday Night Football, of course, and that was Al's show. And it was at the time where they were making a transition in their sideline reporting uh, job. And Al said to producer Fred Gadelli, you really should talk to this Michelle Tafoya. I think she'd be great. And I just, you know, I should send him flowers every day because that was a huge reason that they even talked to me. And, and I got that job at Monday Night Football. And, of course, then it went to it stayed at ESPN on cable and no longer was on ABC. And then Al and and John Madden ended up going over to NBC. And sure enough, I wound up there later on too. But it was uh, it's just been an absolute joy. This crew is like a second family to me. And um, so it was. So it's been <laughs> it's been uh, there have been a lot of twists and turns. What's Al Michaels like as a coworker? What makes him as great as he is? Preparation, number one. Um, He's experienced everything there is to experience as a play-by-play announcer. You know, the earthquake in San Francisco during the World Series between the A's and the Giants. Um, The Cincinnati, you know, Reds, Big Red Machine. Uh, Lake Placid, you know, do you believe in everything there is to experience? Tape, live to tape, live. Al's done it, and he's done it a million times. And so it's very... He's very natural. It's for him to go up there, get in that booth, and it's like you're listening to a great announcer who also happens to be a great fan of what he's watching and what he's announcing. And um, and he's just and he and he knows how to let a broadcast breathe. And I hope people understand what that means. It just means you don't have to talk over everything. You don't have to. Empty your bucket of information just because you have a bucket of information. You don't need to throw it out there for everyone to know. You have to pick and choose your spots, where you drop in the important nuggets. What are the important nuggets? What do people really want to hear? Um, and when? And in what context? you got to be able to set up your analyst well. And he and Chris work beautifully together. He and Madden worked great together. I think Al could work with just about anybody and make it work. He's, that, he's just that good, that smooth and that generous of a of a play-by-play guy to let his analyst be the star, and um, and 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 yet he he is a star himself, and it's just been an absolute privilege to work with him. And he's now one of my dearest friends in the world. So I want to just quickly finish up the the story of your career, so to speak, going from ABC to NBC before we kind of deep dive into the craft and the technical stuff, uh, I guess, what was the the occurrence that led you to making that decision? Uh... It was that group. Um, it was that Al was Al had left uh, to go to Sunday Night Football. The entire crew had left to go to Sunday Night Football. Um, ESPN kept me on their Monday Night game. They didn't want to lose me, so they kept me there. And I wanted to be with my crew and my guys and my gals. And, um, you know, I'm really grateful that ESPN kept me on Monday Night Football. Uh, But it also became very clear to me that Sunday Night Football was a growing enterprise and it was great television. And in addition to which, I, I love that crew. I knew how they worked. I so wanted to be with them. And there came a point where they wanted to, again, make a move from the sideline reporter they had. And my contract, it just happened to be at this moment that my contract was up. And uh, so through some very 
crafty negotiations, I was able to make the transition over to NBC and join that group, producer, director. It was my first time working with Chris Collinsworth because Madden had retired by then. Um, but it was awesome. And I have been so, so happy with this group. Um, I just, it's, it matters when you're going to work that hard and that many hours. It matters who you're working with and that you get along and that there's chemistry and that you enjoy being with them. And like any family, you're going to have some family issues, but uh, when it comes back to it all, you just love working to, together and for each other, and and you love the expectation of being really, really, really good at what you do and um, trying really hard to improve every single day. And uh, and so that, that was an easy choice once it presented itself. So I'm going to start this with the caveat that all of my sportscasting experience has been either play-by-play, color analyst, or talk show. I have never done sideline reporting. So uh, not even in college. I think I had a chance to do it once and ended up having to switch to do something else. So I want to start with a broad question and then kind of zoom in. What makes a great sideline reporter? Experience. I'm going to say that because it looks like it's not hard, but it's incredibly hard. As I just talked about with that Lawrence Phillips moment with me telling a story and not being able to get out of it smoothly. It takes repetition after repetition after repetition because what you are is you're, you're basically the field goal kicker is what I like to make the, anal- the analogy with. So, you know, Alan and Chris are the, the running back and quarterback and the producer and director are, you know, moving all the parts and, they're the, they're the coach and the offensive defensive coordinators. And then when there comes that moment that for 20 to 30 seconds, they need something succinct that is a story, that is clear, that has m- meaning, that gives you a reason to go to that sideline reporter, you better make it count. And if you don't, it, it you know, it's like a doink on this, the field goal. It's like, eh, you just, but if you do, you could be the difference in the game. and But you've got to be ready for that moment, and you don't know when those moments are going to come. So experience is the only thing that can really get you ready for that. I think also being able to learn quickly. Uh, you've got to be a quick study. You've got to be willing to put in a lot of tedious work for very little airtime, and you've got to be okay with that. So all of those things, and, and being flexible, um, and being able to just bounce from one thing to another on a dime. All those things are really important, but without the experience, um, it's a very difficult job. You mentioned that being able to succinctly tell a story in 20 to 30 seconds is, is key. How did you develop those skills? Were there any practical things that you were able to do to, for lack of a better word, practice and improve? That's a really good question because your your instinct is to you want to just make this really cool story and you want to flesh it out as much as you can and the next thing you know you're having to rush through all the verbiage to get it in in 20 25 seconds well that doesn't sound good when you're just throwing a lot of words out there that you've written something that's beautiful maybe but it doesn't sound good when you have to speed through them all so what i learned over the course of time was less is more. Less is always more. And you've just got to be able to edit and edit and edit and go through it and say to yourself, what really matters here? You also want it to end really well. If it's a prepared, you know, a prepared story, you want it to end nicely. You want something at the end to either make people think or laugh or go, huh, you know, or I didn't know that. Um, and so that's what you want to do with those prepared things. On the other, just the live, you know, Tell us what the wind is like down there and how it might affect this field goal, okay? Again, that comes with experience. How do I describe to the viewer which way the wind is blowing? You know, on your screen, it's from the left to the right. It's going from the Redskins bench across uh, the front of your screen to the to the Giants bench. You've got to just – and, again, that stuff is repetition. You've got to kind of take a breath. You've got to be willing and ready to to just get across those those points. But I think – Honestly, I just think it really takes a lot of experience. And and one of the things that we do is every single week I get a critique by the producer. 
and you get on a conference call and you go through everything that you did on the air and you say it was either good or it was eh or it was not good or here's how it could have been better and we get really really picky about it and we nitpick and we do that so we can be the the very best that we can be and i say we cuz it's a team effort and um and so we're just always looking to to polish and polish and polish and polish and you know i've been doing this for a long time and i'm i still i still can always be better every single day you know i'm interested that conference call I know a lot of networks, a lot of people I've talked to on this podcast, they don't necessarily get a lot of feedback from the network. Is that unique to NBC since you've worked for, you know, three of the four major networks? Uh, It is unique to Fred Goodelli, my producer. Um, He did that with me at ABC as well on Monday Night Football. And I think it's just this, there's this constant drive to be better every day. He does it with himself. He does it with the director. He does it with Alan Chris. So, you know, we all get critiqued every single week. Um, One of the first things the crew does, every person on that production crew is required to watch the game back right after. So literally they they get on their plane ride home and they're sitting there watching the game again and taking notes and critiquing every possible thing that they can. And then they go and have a big meeting and talk through it and, and everyone gives their two cents. By the time I get on my conference call with Fred, uh, it's okay. Here, you know, let's go through your stuff. What do you think? Here's what we thought, you know, and 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 so it's um, there is a lot of attention paid to every single facet of our broadcast. That I think is unique to Fred Gadelli, and that's why he's won so many Emmy awards. Where do you keep your Emmys? <laughs> I only have two of them. So they're just uh, they're on a shelf that leads to that's the shelf between our main level of our house and the lower level of our house. I'm proud of them. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I feel so fortunate to have won two Emmys, but I don't you know I don't want to make a huge show of it. It's just an award and it doesn't define me. Uh, but I am really proud of them. So when you're deciding what story to tell in your limited opportunities. Who is making that decision? Is it you? Is it Gadelli? Is it the play-by-play guy? How does the decision-making process end up coming to air? Okay, so we go through and look at all sort of all the major stories of the game, and you know, Al and Chris are going to handle those. We ask ourselves, how can we get a little more in depth on this guy who no one really knows a lot about, but he's up and coming, like say a Sony Michelle from from the New England Patriots this year. What do we do with him? You know, can we find out more about this guy? Because no one really seems to know. Or, you know, um, Jason Kelsey has been unbelievable at center this year. He wasn't as good last year. Let's ask him how that happened. What's, so we kind of find these, these people, and we know it's a lot about guys and their character and their, their, their game and, what, and something that might have changed or something that makes them unique. And so I interview a bunch of guys during the week on, on my own outside of our production meetings, and I just try to find as much interesting information on these guys as I can. And you want it to be game relevant. You, you know, some of the new guys, the rookies, or guys like a Sony Michelle who people don't know a lot about, you, you do want to find out about where they came from and what how, when they knew they loved football and all that kind of stuff. But you also want to find out stuff that might happen in the game. You know, um, how are, how are you in pass protection? How did you get better in pass protection this year? Because there might come a moment where Sonny Michelle has to throw a block, and you want to be able to maybe follow that up with how he learned that. Not everything we learn, believe me, not everything is going to make air. It rarely does. I, I leave a notebook of stuff on the floor, if you will. Uh, but what I do is then I, I transcribe all my interviews, and I sit with Fred and um, Michelle Froman, who's uh, specifically the sideline producer, and we talk through it, and we decide which stories really jump out, which ones we like the best. And then I craft those into these 20-second hits. And uh, like I said, I'm lucky if three of them make air. A lot of the stuff that makes air is more injury-related or stuff going on on the field. But you want to be prepared for – we turn over every stone that we possibly can. So coming up with questions for your on-field interviews – it seems like there's a difficult balance where you have to come up with questions that you, 
you probably already know the answer to, but you have to you have to make sense to someone who doesn't understand the game. But at the same time, coaches sometimes berate you for asking dumb questions in their eyes. How do you come up with your interview questions? Again, you, you go through a lot in uh, the number of years that I, that I've been doing this, and a lot of times you're just. As Al Michaels likes to say, you're just you're opening a door to the same room. You, now you got to find another door to that same room. Like just a different way to get to that same spot. Um, you want your questions to be intelligent. You want to uh, make sure you know. Um, and a lot of it comes really, especially that halftime interview with coaches, really listening to Al and Chris and the points that Chris is making about strategy or whatever it might be or about a trend that he's seeing or a a specific you know or look you know they may have trouble just they cannot stop a wide receiver or a tight end you know you ask them what kind of adjustments they're going to make with that guy so it's it just comes with um a lot of time spent doing this knowing what's really relevant and i definitely get some input from from fred up in the in the production truck he's he's watching too he wants certain amounts of information um, so and then we but we also have a very limited amount of time with these coaches. We do ours intentionally off camera away from a microphone so that I can these coaches can speak a little more freely and we can walk and talk on the way to the locker room or on the way back out to the field and um, hopefully you get a little bit more and then you call through there and you decide what really jumped out about what that coach said and, and now let's distill that into something that we can deliver to the audience. So we've talked mostly about your football work, but you also spent a lot of time covering the NBA. Uh, do you have any Greg Popovich stories? <laughs> I've got a million of them, but you know, he um there's a, something I tell my kids a lot when they're rushing through their homework or they're rushing through their toothbrushing or they're rushing through their chores. I say don't skip steps. And I say that because Greg Popovich said it about a thousand times in his huddles. When guys on the floor were, were, you know, instead of making that extra pass, were going for the shot or whatever it was, he would say it again and again, don't skip steps. He was very disciplined that way. So that's made its way and infiltrated its way into my child rearing. Uh, there's a lot to be said for coaching advice. Greg has given me some of the best um, halftime quotes of all time. He is one of the smartest people I know. He and I managed to have a, a relationship that I'm not sure everyone can have with Popovich, and I'm not sure why we hit it off that way. Uh, I think I was never really intimidated by him. I didn't know I was supposed to be, and uh, and I don't know why people are, frankly. He's a funny guy, and he's great, and, and so I just always was really straight with him, and, and uh, the last time I saw him, the, he had the San Antonio Spurs in Denver, uh, to play the Nuggets, and they were staying at the same hotel we were as we were getting ready for our game in Denver, an NFL game in Denver, and I heard, hey, Greg Popovich is over in the restaurant having a meeting. Well, I just ran over into the restaurant, and I made eye contact with him, and he got up from his meeting with all of his assistants, and he came over, and we embraced, and we chatted and caught up for a couple minutes, and it was great, and I have nothing but respect. If If I ever wanted to play in the NBA, he's the coach I'd want to play for. So I read that your one of your least favorite questions is the what's it like being a woman working in a man's world and I mm-hmm. saw you speak at the Conclave conference here and I thought what you said there was really interesting that you never really looked at it as an obstacle you just really focused on doing good work uh, explain that in a little bit more depth you know it was really a big deal uh, at the time that I started uh, that there just weren't that many women doing this, honestly. Um, and when I went to Charlotte for my first job, I think I was the only woman there. There might have been one other writer, and I don't, and that might not have been until I got to Minneapolis, actually. So when I went to press conferences and I went to shoot-arounds, I was, you know, the only gal there. And that could have been intimidating, but I thought to myself, why would I do that to myself? Why would I make that a an issue? Why? I mean, that's dumb when you think about it because, yeah, I'm different. I'm female, they're male. Science will tell you there's a difference there. But the bottom line is I know I'm capable of the same work as anybody. I don't care who they are, you know. So I just did my job. And 
you know, I, I think there are moments where you can be tempted to feel like a minority or feel out of place, but that's honestly, that's up to you. That's, that's your attitude. Uh, you got to make that choice. And I made the choice that I was not going to, you know, if, if I let that bother me and if I chose to let it bug me, well, I was complicit in it then. So why would I choose to do that? Why would I choose to put that obstacle in my way? There are enough obstacles in life and, and you got to work through all of them, but you, you, you have to, choose how you're going to approach it. So my approach was always, no, I'm not a female sports reporter. I'm a sports reporter. I'm going to do what he does and that guy does and this guy over there. And, and, and eventually I'm going to do what she does and that gal and all of us, we're all, what we're doing is we're working on a set of facts and how we present them and stories and how we present them. And so, you know, the work's the same. Yeah. I might wear a skirt and I might throw on some mascara but that doesn't change what's coming out of my mouth. So it was just an attitude that I've always taken, and it worked for me. And when I saw other women, and I did, who were afraid to go into a locker room, who didn't understand how I could go in a locker room, a men's locker room, or who decided to, they chose to feel um, a certain way about their job, and I mean that, it's a choice. Uh, they didn't last very long, and that's not a criticism to them. I just wish that that's that's a piece of advice that I always impart to young women and young men. I mean, you, you get to you get one. We all face stuff. You can't control everything that is out there and in, in your way. All you can control is your mind and how you're going to approach it. And so that's just kind of the tact I always took and continue to take. There's a couple specific stories from your career that I'd love to have you recount as we start to wrap things up a little bit. And the first one is is not necessarily a super happy one. You were on the field when Gary Kubiak collapsed and had looked like he was having potentially heart issues on the field. Take us through that moment and how you handled it and what you would do different or whether you would do anything differently? I was um, up in a tunnel going toward another, the, the, the opposition locker room and uh, talking to the coach. And um, therefore, there, there's something that people probably know now, and the audiences are fairly sophisticated. We wear this earpiece so that we can communicate and hear our producer and director in the truck. They can talk to us at any time. Well, I had that earpiece out of my ear, and it was kind of sitting on my shoulder. It's like a tiny little speaker is basically what it is. And as I'm talking to Coach Pagano, I was, who happened to be the guy I was talking to, I heard this. I heard Michelle Froman from my shoulder saying, Michelle, Michelle, Michelle. And I'm like, what in the heck? So I had to stop my interview and put the earpiece in and go, what are you doing? I'm talking to coach. And she said, someone collapsed on the field. We think it might be Kubiak. Well, now I immediately just sprinted as fast as I could out of the tunnel across the field to where this was happening. And it was Kubiak. And I, the first thing I noticed about him was that his eyes were really tightly shut. Like if you if you close your eyes as tightly as you can, they kind of, you know, you, these little wrinkles come to the eyelids and the sides of your eyes. And it reminded me of my dad after he had his stroke. And so I didn't want to jump to any conclusions, but that's what I thought of. Um, I then had to just observe and listen and talk to as many people as I could, find out if he was speaking, find out if he was in pain, find out what I could find out. I couldn't talk to him, obviously, and I had to keep a certain amount of distance. And I knew, and I think we all knew, I mean, Bob Costas was hosting the halftime, and all of us knew we could be witnessing something really awful. We didn't know if this guy was going to die. Honestly, you don't know. There's a guy on his back on a football field with his eyes tightly shut, and you don't know what's happening. And he tried to sit up, and he couldn't, and he laid back down again. So I'm then required to relate all of this on the air. We had to be very careful of what we actually showed through our cameras lenses 
and had to rely on what I was seeing. Um, and then from that point on, it was chase the story. And this is where you're actually running and chasing down every possible bit of information you can get. So Wade Phillips was his defensive coordinator and took over as the, the, the coaching head duties at halftime. So I talked to Wade when he came out of the locker room. I got to talk to the general manager. We got information from the hospital. We got everything we could possibly get um, and just presented it. And again, you, you, it's a story where you're walking a very fine line. You don't want to overreact. You don't want to do that breathless reporting because you don't know. So, um, you know, you, you just, you just, it was really just walking that tightrope of giving the facts, doing everything respectfully, doing everything seriously, but not over dramatizing because it's just, it's hard to describe, but it, it just had to be done with the right amount of tact and thought and care and caution. And, uh, I don't know, we just, we just did the best that we could. And, um, if I had to do it over again, I think the only thing all of us would change is at one point, my, the, our director, Drew Asikoff, was saying, Michelle, you got to back out of the picture a little bit because we can see you. Well, yeah, you can see me because I had a job to do. And we all talked about that afterward, that, you know what, it shouldn't have mattered if I was in the shot because I had to get as close as I possibly could to what was happening on the field. So honestly, I it's some of the work that I'm proudest of because I kept my head about me in a really difficult situation that required constant reporting. And uh, I thought we all handled it the best that we could. And um, so, yeah, it's, 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 it was a sad and scary situation, but one that we're all really proud we, we did properly. A little bit more of a, positive story that I'd love you to share. You were on the floor when Kevin Garnett did his anything is possible, <laughs> you know, guttural scream. Uh, I, I imagine you've had, being from Minnesota, a long relationship with Kevin Garnett. You know, just share that experience. I met Kevin when he, the day he graduated from high school. I went with, I was a CBS Sports. We went to do a feature on him because he was the big hot name coming into the draft as far as this kid coming right out of high school. It was a huge story. And um, we spent the entire day with him in Malden, South Carolina, and talked to him about everything. And, uh, and he was this wide-eyed kid. I kid you not. And at the end of the interview, when we were finished, I said to him, sitting there face-to-face, -face, I said, hey, Kevin, the, the Timberwolves could draft you and you could be in Minnesota. This is all off camera now. And I said, so if you get there, you know, don't forget me because that's where I am. And he said, if I get there, you don't forget me. <laughs> I kind of laughed and I thought, Kevin, it's going to be impossible to forget you. But anyway, sure enough, he came to Minnesota and I covered him closely for his entire career there. Then he goes to Boston and I'm covering the NBA on ABC. And lo and behold, he wins the world championship, and I was thrilled to be the one to interview him after that. And, yes, you know, he answered my first question with that unbelievable, unforgettable, anything's possible. And, uh, you know, some people said to me later, I felt sorry for you. That must have been so uncomfortable. And I was like, are you kidding? You live for that stuff. You don't get that very often, that really raw, authentic emotion. It was awesome. And, um something that people didn't see after that was that the Celtics allowed me into the locker room because they knew that Kevin and I were, were friends. And, um, I went in there and I was covered with champagne by the time I left, but we got to hug each other and he just was so emotional and, and we just embraced for about a minute and a half. And it's a, it's a really fond memory for me. And, um, yeah, I miss him. I haven't seen him in a long time, but that was a, that was that's definitely one of the more memorable moments of my career. What are some of the other memorable moments that that I haven't brought up or that I've missed that uh, that would just make for a good story? Brett Favre facing the Packers for the first time when he was with the Vikings, and it was here in Minnesota, and it was on Monday Night Football, and I was the sideline reporter, and being told by the head of the network. 
just before the game, hey, if Brett wins this game, you have as much time with him in the post-game interview as you want. Well, there's music to a sideline reporter's ears, and uh, sure enough, they won. And that whole day was electric. It was the feeling in the Metrodome, you could cut it with a knife. And it was an extraordinary experience, and it was so great to get that moment to 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 interview one of the all-time greats and one of the all-time amazing moments in his career. Um, Reggie Miller, he and I are friends. We worked on the WNBA together for many years. We're close friends. And um, then I covered his game where it was his last game. He was retiring after that game. And I knew he didn't really want to do a post-game interview, but he gave me one anyway. And, um, and I, I really treasure that. I, I, I'm grateful that he did that with me and, and it's a testament to him as a friend. Um, Michael Jordan coming back from retirement, got to cover him. Uh, I sent him a thank you note for giving me an interview. And the next time I saw him, he said, are you the one that sent me the thank you note? I said, yeah. And he goes, you can interview me anytime you want. Just that simple thank you note to him just opened a door. You learn from these things. You know, there's constant learning. Uh, but I think just there, there there are so many great moments. I've been able to cover Olympic Games and and Michael Phelps comeback in Rio. And I just, you know, just in telling you all of this, I realize that there's just been a lot of great stuff. And um, And I'm just very, very, very lucky. Dealing with the elements as a sideline reporter, I would imagine it's one of the more difficult things. What is uh, your keys to dealing with cold weather and tough elements? I hate the elements when they're bad. I wish everyone played in a dome. I know that sounds so bad. And, you know, the true old school folks are like, no, you know, Lambeau Field and, you know, the Metropolitan Stadium when it was here, you know, all of that. And, uh, um, it's difficult. Rain is the worst. It's because it's very difficult to control all this stuff, the writing that you need to do and all of that. Wind is no good. Um, snow is fine. Freezing temperatures are brutal. And I think you just learn. I'm a California girl from the beginning, but my husband who grew up in Minnesota told me you can get through anything with the right equipment. <laughs> and he's right. And so I've just learned over the years how to put the foot warmers in the whole entire sole of the boot, not just the toe warmers. Toe warmers are terrible. Always go for the full foot warmers. What kind of boots work? Um, don't be, you know what, if it's going to be that cold, wear snow pants. It doesn't matter what people think. Wear the dang snow pants. You're going to freeze otherwise. And I've seen people not do it, and I feel sorry for them. Um, you know, layers. Um, I, every kind of heater I can put, I've found these electric vests that you can put on under a parka, electric gloves that keep your, you know, they're warm all through the game. Um, just a lot of different tricks, but there are many times you just have to accept the fact that you're going to be uncomfortable, it's going to stink, you're going to hate it, but you'll get through it. And uh, you learn that, and so your attitude changes. It doesn't make it any easier while you're out there, and we're out there for a long time because we're out there before the game as well, but um, you just got to deal with it. Very last question before I send you back to your family. And I read that when you decided to leave your NBA work behind and focus just on football, you made that decision in a pumpkin patch watching one of your children just toddle around. <laughs> Take us through that story and how you're able to balance family life with a demanding, uh, with a demanding job with the travel schedule you have. The travel schedule is difficult now. It was 10 times harder then because the NBA, when you cover the playoffs, I was home for maybe two nights every six weeks, and that's not an exaggeration. And that's difficult. And um, after I got married and we had our son, I was missing a lot. And I was miserable when I was on the road, just miserable. I had this son that I was so attached to and so in love with, and I was missing so much. And my contract was up for renewal and he was two years old, my son. And I just, I thought, can I do this again? Can I go through this? And if you're going to do the NBA, you got to do the playoffs, right? You got to do the championships there. Otherwise, why do it? So I, I, that's not to say that if you don't get that opportunity, but for me at that point, it was like, 
if I'm going to cover the NBA, I want to cover the pinnacle of it. I want to cover all of it, or I don't want to do it at all. And so I thought about it, and I thought about it, and I thought about it, and they gave me the contract extension offer, and I thought about it, and my husband and I just said, we can't, no, we cannot, we can't. And we could live without the paycheck. We were lucky in that I still had the NFL work. So we went to the pumpkin patch that day, and I said, I'm going to call them from the car. You take Tyler, my son, in. And I'm sitting there watching him walk around, as you said, toddle around this pumpkin patch, this little guy. And uh, I made the call, and I got the the, the producer on the phone, and I said, i got to tell you, I can't do it anymore. And he said, well, how about just Thursday nights? And I'm like, no, no, if I want to do it, I want to do the big game. If I'm going to take time away from my family, I want it to be for the big game. And I just can't do it anymore. And so I walked away from it. And I never, ever regretted that decision, ever. Sometimes the extra money just ain't worth it. When you've got a child that you adore, and I think it's tougher for moms. I really do. I think there's just something about the mom who carried this little bugger in her belly for nine months. And, and it's, I'm a really emotional person and I love my kids beyond measure. And I just, yeah, I made that decision and I never looked back. Well, thank you for coming on the Say the Damn Score podcast. Once again, we are visiting with Michelle Tafoya, the sideline reporter for NBC's Sunday Night Football. And I just really appreciate you giving me some of your time. I appreciate the the questions, and uh, well-prepared. Good on you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Remember to subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice by clicking the big red subscribe button at the top of saythedamnscore.com. Also, please follow me on the social media outlet of your choice. And remember, iTunes reviews, emails, or any other kind of honest feedback is greatly appreciated and helps me make the show better. As always, I'm Logan Anderson, and the next time you're on the air, make sure to say the damn score a little bit more.